2: Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're going to be taking your calls during the hour concerning any kind of healthcare issues or topics that you need answered. You can reach us this morning by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or if you can't reach us this morning or think of something after the hour is over, you can always send us an email. You can send that to remedy at mpbonline.org. We try to respond back to you on those issues, but we also share those, if you give us permission, of course, with our larger audience because they are always great questions. Hope everybody is staying dry. I know people in Southern Mississippi probably don't want to see any rain for a while, but uh, unfortunately, we are getting more of that over the next few days. Just remember to stay safe. Uh, watch out for uh, rain over roads, particularly if you cannot see the bottom of it, and uh, be careful. There's a lot of water out there. We uh, know we've got uh, several <clears throat> several instances in a few weeks where we've had uh, flash flooding and Unfortunately, some deaths related to that, uh, and road collapses as well. So please be careful um, as you go out and about. Um, That's one of the the things that we always like to emphasize of safety, no matter what you're doing uh, here on Southern Remedy. Hope everybody is uh, also staying safe with uh, COVID, and uh, certainly we are very pleased to see some of the hospital numbers decrease not just in our own hospital at uh, University of Mississippi Medical Center, but also throughout the state. They have slowly come down, trended down, and uh, thankful to receive some help both across the state uh, to treat those patients and from elsewhere, um, both from the federal government and from other organizations like Samaritan's Purse. Um, you can still get your vaccine if uh, you are not vaccinated. That's still the best way to protect yourself against not only getting the virus, but if you get the virus from some of the more serious side effects, and uh, you're certainly much more likely to have serious side effects, uh, particularly if you're in a higher-risk group, that being older patients, if you're on anything that's, uh, that's affecting your immune system or if you're being treated for cancer, all of those things can put you at a higher risk. Uh, you definitely need to be vaccinated to protect yourself. So you, there are multiple ways you can do that. Physician about doing that or your pharmacy. Uh, they are widespread uh, uh, available right now for you to get, so I would encourage you to do that. September is prostate awareness, prostate cancer awareness month, and I do want to uh, talk a little bit about that. You know, prostate cancer is one of the more common cancers uh, in the world for men. Um, and, uh, as you get older, there's, uh, increased risk of that. So it's about 1.4 million cases each year worldwide. And in the United States, it's the leading cause of cancer death in U.S. men. Uh, the, uh, you know, as you get older, your prostate enlarges and certainly you can have some symptoms of decreased urinary stream. But a lot of people will develop prostate cancer and not even know it. So it, It is uh, a good idea if you're over the age of 50 to at least talk to your physician or your healthcare professional that and see what your risk is overall. They will likely ask you some questions. Uh, Certainly they'd know your age, but uh, if you're in a higher-risk group, particularly if you're a black male or if you've had an increased uh, family history of prostate cancer in a first- or second-degree relative uh, and they developed it less than the age of 65, if that's the case, they may want to do some further screening. Uh, certainly, there are a number of ways to do that. Uh, PSA is a blood test that stands for prostate-specific antigen, and it is a blood test, those levels, that's a substance of protein that your uh, that your prostate makes that can be detected in blood. And uh, they may look at that and your age and try to determine if it's elevated. If it is elevated, they may want to repeat that. There's lots of other things that might make that initial screening test elevated that aren't related to cancer. And if it's persistent enough, they may want to have a discussion. They're probably going to have a discussion with you about further uh, testing, uh, which can include a prostate biopsy uh, or imaging test to try to figure out if you do have prostate cancer. Good news, if you... If it is detected early, it's very treatable. It's a very slow-growing cancer, so a lot of individuals, again, won't even know they have it. Um, There are a lot of different options for that. In lower-risk individuals, depending on the staging and the aggressiveness of the tumor, you may be able to do surveillance, which is basically just sort of watching the PSA, doing some some imaging studies to see if it's growing or if it's getting larger or spreading anywhere. There are also treatments anywhere from radiation therapy to brachytherapy. Those are sort of the implants that people talk about. And then, of course, the old radical prostatectomies or the limited uh, removal of parts of the prostate uh, gland itself. So there's lots of different things you can do with that. But the main message this month is if you're over the age of 50 and certainly if you have a first- or second-degree relative that has had prostate cancer less than age 65, talk to your physician about that and see what type of screening test would be best for you uh, to uh, to receive. So certainly for males out there, myself included, that's something you should be, uh, be aware of. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call if you have a question about any kind of health problem is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Another thing that's come up uh, recently that I've seen a couple of patients, uh, either one with follow-up and one with a new diagnosis, is sarcoidosis. That's a uh, rather big word, and it can be confusing, but here in the South, we see a lot of that, particularly in individuals from the age of 20 to 60, so sarcoidosis is a, an, a type of autoimmune disease where you basically can develop some nodules. We call them, in the fancy doctor terms, uh, case, non-caseating uh, granulomas. And basically this is uh, scar tissue if you want to look at that, but basically it's encasing different things. Sometimes your body, in a natural way, they'll use those kinds of, of methods to in, encase certain bacteria, particularly bacteria that cause things like in sarcoid though your body is is uh, mistaking uh, you know something in your own body for that and it tends to affect your lungs most commonly but it can be uh, certainly can in, in, uh, affect your skin your joints your eyes well so most of the symptoms are related to these uh, granulomas or nodules in your lungs and uh, it's Typically, will present again in young individuals, about age twenty to sixty years of age. Uh, it affects females more than males, but males can get it too. And presents as a chronic cough or uh, shortness of breath. It can present with chest pain and sometimes with just a, a generalized feeling of fatigue, uh, and sometimes with weight loss too. And in those individuals, your you know uh, chest X-ray sometimes can make the diagnosis, and then a, a biopsy of the actual granulomas or those little nodules and uh, organ systems again the lungs are the biggest one sometimes it can affect the kidneys as well it is very treatable Um, about a third of patients will get better on their own a third will get better with treatment and a third will have persistent symptoms but uh, steroids at least for three months is uh, the the best way to uh, initially treat this and then in individuals that require treatment after that or to spare some of the side effects of steroids, there's lots of other medications that can help modulate your immune system, so things like methotrexate or uh, other medications that you take for, um, for immune-modulating responses. Um, if you do have this, it, is, uh, it is certainly can be treated by a number of individuals, but the most common uh, physicians that you probably would see would either be a lung doctor, that's a pulmonologist, uh, or an internal medicine doctor, or a nephrologist if you're having kidney problems with it. So uh, rheumatologists also uh, see this since it's an autoimmune-type disease. So uh, you may be seeing one or multiple individuals. I know there are several places uh, you know, that, have, uh, that have multi-specialty clinics for sarcoidosis, but it, it is something that can be treatable. So if you're having a chronic cough and those other symptoms, go to your physician to get checked out about that and uh, they can uh, do some further to uh, try and see if that's what you have.
3: I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app.
2: Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning, answering calls and questions, taking some emails too to go through those. Uh, any kind of health question that you have a question about, maybe it's a new medication that you're taking, an over-counter medication, or a new diagnosis, whatever it is, you can call us this morning. We'll try to get you the answers. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. If you miss a program and want to go back, or I know a lot of people will catch a part of, if you're like me, usually I'll catch a part of a program on the radio, and I want to go back and listen to it. We do archive our programs. You can go to org and search for Southern Remedy. There's also a podcast there that you can subscribe to uh, to listen to those at your leisure. Um, but that's a good way to go back and, and look for a uh, or listen to a question that uh, maybe you uh, got cut off on or had to... You away away from the radio at that time. Uh, going to an email first, um, this is uh, from a listener. It says, my son was recently diagnosed with a mild impaction. We did a three-day cleanse with Miralax and now have added a half a cup of Miralax to his daily routine. Uh, part of our challenge is that he says he cannot feel when he has a bowel movement and it, when it's happening and he's having some accidents. Uh, this is a potty training he'll soon be six i understand that the nerves can be stretched during an impaction it may take some time for normal uh feelings to occur how long should we expect this process to last he continues to have accidents uh, it's causing problems at school that we've been dealing with this over three weeks now and i cannot continue to go to the school he cannot continue to go to the school if he keeps having accidents so constipation is a common thing in younger individuals and it's one of the more common things that we see in pediatrics particularly with toddlers up through about age eight to ten and it can be caused by a number of things Uh, the most common thing is as kids uh, you know learn how to control their bowel movements a lot of times they will um, they will not go to the bathroom they'll not evacuate their their uh, bowels like they should and just like adults, the longer that you do that, the harder that stool becomes. But large intestine, its job is to absorb water from that uh, fecal material. And the longer it stays there, the more water it absorbs. The other thing that can influence this is um, more fatty meals and sort of our typical fast food diets uh, tend to to create situations where we have more uh, constipation and more uh, dense stools so eating diets with fiber can help that somewhat so a situation like this at six um, there's a couple of things that are probably happening Uh, now sometimes you can get an impaction impaction just means that you have a hard stool that's impacted it's not coming out sometimes you have to have enemas for that or you have to have other ways of uh, flushing the system out appropriately because what you can do if you have a significant impaction the only way for stool to get around that is to leak around it. So a lot of parents will bring their kids in and they'll say, you know, I know he's constipated because he's got some loose stool coming out. Well, he may have an impaction, and the only thing that can come around that is loose stool. Uh, so getting a good clean-out first is, is the first thing you want to do. It, it, in order to tell that you have that, uh, a physician may do an exam. A lot of times you can feel that stool. They may do an X-ray where you can see the stool uh, still in the colon. Now the, the the medication that our emailer uh, listener mentioned, Miralax, is one that's used uh, quite frequently. So Miralax, basically, it's a really safe medication. It's not by the body. It basically keeps fluid or water inside the lumen. That's the interior of the large intestine. So it brings water into the intestine and uh, and loosens it up. And you basically can uh, sort of titrate how much you need. There's a, it's a powder that you can put in just about any liquid. Uh, and certainly for a six year old, it's pretty easy to deal with. And what I will tell parents is give them a, you know, sort of the volume to start off with and then to to either decrease that or increase it depending on how stools are. So what we're, what we're shooting for is a form stool, but still loose. So that's, that's the key. So a six-year-old, particularly if they've dealt with an impaction, even if it's a loose stool, once they feel the urge, they may still uh, sort of tighten up and keep that in there. So uh, it sounds like in this case it may be a little bit too loose and you may want to decrease the Miralax dose a little bit. The other possibility is that there's still some hard stool in there where it's still an impaction, you're only getting loose tool around it. So three weeks, that's about time to touch base back with your physician that you're seeing to see if they wanna do some other tests. Now in younger individuals, less than the age of two, a lot of times there can be some other things that are going on with the actual nerves that are there uh, in the colon. Uh, there are some congenital uh, situations that might uh, put some some kids at risk for having that more long-term. But generally it can be treated It is more of a long-term thing, um, and you do have to loosen that stool up because for a kid this age who's had chronic constipation problems, as far as they're concerned, nothing good ever came out of their bottom. And uh, they're just going to clamp down, and uh, unfortunately, the more they clamp down, the harder that stool gets. So making it loose, having regular bathroom breaks, um, and then sort of titrating that uh, Miralax also, increasing the fiber content of uh, different foods that they eat—all those things can can uh, improve those symptoms. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at remedy at mpbonline dot org.
4: Uh, Doctor Jimmy, since uh, no one's on the phone lines, I thought I would jump in. You know, I always have a question or two ready to go. Sure. Uh, this is about blood pressure, and I've been taking my blood pressure at home. Got the monitor because the, my doctor wanted to, you know, kind of keep a closer eye on the blood pressure. Uh, I usually end up taking it about the same time of day uh, every time I take it. Is it more valuable for my uh, pr- my healthcare provider that I take it at different times of the day, and should I let her know this one was at thus such, such a time, and and that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, you know, we've we've shifted with home blood pressure measurements and the utilities of those, I can remember in training, we really didn't put much stock into those at home back in the 90s and uh, 80s. And uh, that's certainly what what we've learned through blood pressure monitoring is that the home blood pressures are very important. It really makes sense when you think about it that the more blood pressures that you get away from a doctor's office gives you a true representation of what the blood pressure is. Now, um, you know, when is a good time to take that? It really depends on a number of things. Uh, First of all, blood pressure can vary throughout the day. It doesn't stay the same number all the time. It can vary by about 20% during the daytime. Generally speaking, even if you're being treated for high blood pressure at night, it will drop about 20%. So if you're running 120s or 130s, over 70s to 80s during the day, you can expect that blood pressure maybe drop as low as 100 over 60 at night, uh, and that's okay. Certainly, we would one would not advise patients to wake up in the middle of the night and check their blood pressure. But in experimental studies and clinical trials, we have done that, and uh, you know we do know the blood pressure normally goes down at night. But checking it throughout the day, maybe maybe uh, at different times, may be important. Number one, in some patients, you'll notice that they sort of like at different times of the day. Normally, the highest blood pressure is going to be somewhere in the mid-afternoon, and the lowest during the daytime, of course, is right when you wake up. Um, so getting different times really gives you a little bit more idea of what that blood pressure is doing throughout the day. Um, I typically don't tell patients to take it more than twice a day, um, but if you're taking it at random... you may want to alternate that and just put the time by it. And a lot of blood pressure monitors will go ahead that have memory, they'll go ahead and and, uh, put the time down that that you have those blood pressures. So, Kevin, I think, you know, it is a good idea to do that. If there's particularly, not necessarily in yourself, but in somebody who's much older, sometimes we will change the dosing of when we give the medications. There are a few studies that have shown that, uh dosing at night may be more beneficial than dosing in the morning. And certainly, if you have a medication that's starting to wear off, uh, you know, I have some patients that I'll dose some medications at night, some in the morning, sort of to split that up and give more of a 24-hour coverage for the blood pressure. But all those information you should give back to your physician. They may look at it and say, yeah, this looks great. Uh, even if your office blood pressure is high, those those home readings are very important to try to tease out what that true blood pressure is so excellent blood pressure question excellent question as usual Kevin
4: righty, thank you hey we've got a caller on the line so let's say good morning to Wayne who's called in from Olive Branch
2: good morning Wayne thank you for calling
4: hi uh listen I had a brain
5: hemorrhage oh uh December 18th of last year and uh I'm still having a little bit of, i got two issues. I've got a little short-term memory problem that I've been to a neurologist twice and addressed this issue. I forget things like, and part of it's my age. I'm 69 years old. Uh, I have a problem forgetting about taking my medicine and also have a problem with, like, remember to get my keys or my wallet before I go out the door and then got to come back in and get it. So I was wondering, is is there anything I can do? They put me on the, of the occupational therapist, gave me some games to play for the short term memory, mm-hmm. and uh, I really don't have any side effects from this uh, stroke. Everything's good, my my thinking, my walking. You know, I have no paralysis of no kind. I was wondering, can you advise me a little bit? Uh, like when I forget my medicine at night time, you know, can I take it? In the
6: yeah, morning time when I want
5: to take the rest of my medicine or no?
2: Uh it depends on what type of medicine it is really. So if it's say for hypertension patients, if you you know, if it's an occasional thing, don't don't take it, you know, twelve hours later. Uh but y- it really depends on the type of medication. Some medications, for instance, diabetes medications would be it wouldn't be advisable to, you know, sort of double up or take them later. Um but, you know, one thing, speaking back to the short-term memory loss, um, you're, it sounds like you're already doing some of this, which is trying to reinforce some things. That, and basically, there it sounds like that area of your brain that helps to process those, those you know, where did I leave my keys, where have I parked my car, uh, do I remember to take certain things. I would probably just augment that, maybe with an alarm that says, "You know, take your medications," and just set that for certain times. Uh, There are actually tracking little tracking devices you can hook up to your phone now that uh, for your keys or your wallet, even uh, that can help help locate that. I just think your brain's going to have to have a little bit more of uh, of a reminder about that and any way right. you can build that in. Now, the, what the occupational therapist is giving you is perfect because what we know now is that a lot of those, how long ago was that when you had the, the stroke?
5: Uh, December 18th.
2: Of, the, of this past year? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and, and even, you know, even at 69, we used to think, well, if you have a stroke, you're not going to recover any function. We know now even in older individuals, you can recover a lot. And your brain yeah. has a lot of plasticity, meaning it can learn how to do things in different areas. It does take. Yes, yeah, sir. They to told me it
5: take about a full year to get everything one hundred percent. Yep. So,
2: and that's that's
5: encouraging. You know, you know I got to get my medicine, my keys. Uh, right. Like the garage door when I go and get in my car to go somewhere, uh, I've got to put a note on the on the door, big note. You know, uh, eight and a half by eleven. Close the garage door. So I'll remember yeah. to do it. Yeah, yeah.
2: And that's fine. You know, you're just giving your brain uh you're retraining it uh, through all those things too. And uh, all those sort of mind games, you know, some people are like, "Well, I, That can't help, does it? Yeah, it does. It helps to restructure those pathways in your brain. If you think of it like a computer, if you have a damage to your hard drive, you may have other areas that you can move that information over to and can preserve it. And your brain's really the same way. But I would check with your doctor on those medications, just on the because I'm not I don't know exactly what they are. Uh, some of them you may be able to take the next morning, and some of them you know it may not be worth it or may even be dangerous to do that. So I would just wait and see what they said.
5: Right, right, okay. Well, uh, both times I spoke about it to, I've been to the neurologist twice since I had the stroke, and mm-hmm. I've addressed this same issue, and I, I've not got it resolved so. I listen to you and I think you're a very smart doctor, to tell you the truth. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and well I you know, certainly I listen every week to you, so I so I'm gonna try him today and see what he's gotta say. Maybe I'm not doing something. Uh as far as those uh those things like on your keys, you know, the locator for your key and wall, where where do you buy those? Do you get them off of the Amazon and stuff? And what's yeah, it called? You can get it.
2: Uh, you can get off I don't, I'm trying to I'm blanking now I'm blanking on my memory. Uh so I can't remember the exact ones. I know Apple makes a couple of those that are really small and they attach to your key ring. Um so if you you know, if you can go online to uh to Apple they can they can do that and it can it can sync up with your phone. So uh, if you have an Apple device. Uh so there may be others out there, I'm sure there are, but um, you know tracking devices for keys, you can search for any of that probably and find it. But um but yeah that's the the more you use your, your brain though the the better be long term. I've been using it for sixty nine years. You think I'd have it down
0: by now. <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: right. That's right. Well thank you Wayne. We appreciate your call and uh I appreciate those kind words. <music>
4: Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker.
5: Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry
4: Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes. That was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app.
2: This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy you this morning, answering your calls and uh, any kind of questions that you might have about the health of yourself or others, you can reach us right now by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464
4: We do have another caller on the line, Dr. Jimmy. It's uh, William in Starkville.
6: Good
2: morning, William. Thank you for calling this morning.
6: Good morning, uh, we are ardent and willing supporters of MPP, and I just wanted to s- exploit the connection to get a little uh, advice on, on atrial fibrillation uh, that I was uh, diagnosed with a year ago. And I can't find that I've got any of the symptoms. I'm very old. I have mm-hmm. an irregular heartbeat, but I watched it on monitors in, uh, uh, for some dental surgery for 25 years at least. Um, But uh, and I'm in good health. I walk uh, three or four miles uh, three or four times a week ardent, hard and I'm even uh, trying to get back into jogging. I used to be a distance runner and and loved to run. I just lost the love of running but I do walk. (laughs) Anyway, I'm I'm not overweight. I have no diabetes. I have no health problems to speak of uh, other than that I, I had a, a severe episode for a day a year ago of uh, uh, vertigo, but uh, it took me three months to get over it uh, completely, although I got over it in 24 or 48 hours except for dizziness in the morning. And I'd like to know, if I don't have any rapid heartbeat, I never have a rapid heartbeat. I've had one peculiar symptom that I've told a dozen doctors about for uh 30 years, 40 years, that nobody can identify, but it only happens once or twice a year and has been going on for 70 years, I would guess, uh, 60 years at least. Anyway, I just wondered if I'm in good shape like uh, like I am. I eat well. We eat a a heart-healthy diet, uh, everything in my favor, except that I have this irregular heartbeat, and all of a sudden a year ago, they uh, diagnosed uh, this AFib, and mm-hmm. uh, I want to know, I, I, I can't believe I need to start taking medicine for it when I can still go out and, and jog uh, 200 yards or, or, and walk miles. Uh, yeah. One time, twice this year, I've walked five miles hard, once in the yeah. in the real heat.
2: So, so there's a couple of things with AFib. Uh, you nicely, William, you nicely outlined sort of what some patients experience, which is basically no symptoms. Sometimes it's just picked up on an EKG that you obtained for something else, or it might be an initial,
6: it's picked up on the EKG. That's where the doctor right. diagnosed it from.
2: Yeah, and uh, atrial fibrillation. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, so the top two you have. Four chambers in your heart. The top two are the atria. The bottom two are the ventricles.
6: Yeah, I'm intimately familiar with the mechanics of the heart. Yeah, that's I'll right, it's intimate, right?
2: So, uh, so what happens, you know, and William, you know this, but our other listeners may not, is that those upper chambers are sort of quivering. They're not. Um, they're they are not they they do not have a, a synchronized uh, electrical impulse that goes through them, and they don't pump as well. And the risk with that over time, uh, e- even if it's like if it's coming and going, uh, is that you would develop a blood clot in those chambers because blood is pooling in there and not being pumped out appropriately. And then it would go downstream, uh, which downstream usually means your heart or your, your head. So stroke is a, big, uh, is a big risk factor for that. There is a way to calculate that based how on a that number be a
6: problem if i if I'm walking hard three or four times a week uh, how can well, it I, certainly, can I it have certainly a helps that's yeah. dangerous in my atria
2: yeah so so the if if the atria aren't pumping like they should if they're not contracting and they're just sort of quivering, even if you're doing those other activities, you could have blood sitting there in the atria and they're not emptying out all the way um. So I, I'm trying to think of a of a way to, to sort of to sort of a, an analogy for that. Uh, even if you're getting enough blood flow to the rest of your body, there still may, may be a little bit of, of pooling of that blood in the atria that then can have a clot that breaks off and goes downstream. So uh, certain more active you are the better. I would not, you know, advise that you cut back on anything. It certainly sounds like you're eating well and, and the activities there, but you do need a you know a cardiologist to look at that probably and just to give you the risk. I mean there there's a number of factors that they're going to plug in, age being the one that's probably the biggest one, uh, and they can just give you the numbers of of what's your risk of that happening. Um, now there general, there
6: is, general t- statistics. I'd like to know what the statistics are for somebody that's in excellent health and. And has no other symptoms uh at all uh what what the threat is if if it's only you know half a percent a year uh what they just say one percent or two percent uh right
2: uh, yeah and it's and there's a
6: deloquist, a, but uh I haven't started taking it yet because i yeah. i worry about i I've been in the habit of not being, needing never needing any uh, drugs or. Right. medicine all my life, and so I haven't started taking this yet. Uh, right. Yeah, going It's going to annoy uh, my doctor, I'm sure.
2: It, it, it's, and they probably wanted you to take that because of that risk score. So there's something called a, a, a CHADS-VASC-2 score, and it uh, calculates, based on all the other things that you have or don't have, what your overall risk is, and if it's high enough, that's the point where they would want you to, you know, be on an anticoagulation like a blood thinner like Eliquis.
6: What's that called? What's that? Uh, uh, I remember uh, they've it's never called a It's a called a, for me.
2: But. Right. It's called a CHADS-VASC, a C-H-A-D. What's the second
6: word, CHAD. C-H-A-D, I presume it is?
2: Well, it, <laughs> it stands for all the different things. So it's chronic risk factors for stroke, uh, having a TIA or other embolism. So it's it's C H. 2 the number two, D-S-2-V-A-S-C. So if you Google that, you're going to find, you know, that score, and then you could plug in your own numbers probably. But
6: oh, okay. But
2: basically, you know, in yourself,
6: if you don't have
2: high blood pressure, if you're 75 and older, that's, you know, some points there. If you don't have diabetes, uh, previous stroke, those kinds of things. Um, so there's a lot of – there's a point system. Basically, the more points you have – that sort of calculates your overall stroke risk and uh, thromboembolism. That's just those pieces of that clot going somewhere else um, over a one-year period. Um, so, for instance, if you've got no risk factors, it's less than 1%. If you've got, you know, if, if your score is like 9 or above, it's a 20-plus uh, percent risk of, of having a stroke or, or, or thromboembolic event that that's that would be important to know that and then maybe going back to your physician and saying hey what's my score and they're going to know it and uh or they should know it and then they you know can tell you you know sort of what what you need to do there i would think if you don't have any other problems are you? what's your age i'm i'm 90 oh wow okay so you know that's two points right there nobody in, believes
6: it and, yeah, and I can, and if, I, can outrun, I can still, I can still outmaneuver folks. You know that are fifty or sixty.
2: Sure, it sounds like it. <laughs> I mean, I think if you don't have any, if you had zero other medical problems, I have problems. a loss
6: of balance. I have an acute loss of balance after the after the uh, vertigo a year ago, and yeah. I carry a staff with me when I walk, and right. I have to be very careful in the dark. Or in the in the forest in the woods for the irregular, but otherwise, if I'm on the street, I can and keep my eyes yeah. on the pavement, no problem. I
2: I would just ask them, and if it's you know if your if your overall risk of of having one of those events is pretty low, you may not you know need to take that. But certainly uh-huh. at 90, it sounds like you are incredibly active and certainly have been living very well. And um, but if your risk is fairly low over the next year, you know you may not. You may not have to take anything.
6: Well, the, the, your advice on this uh, on this score is uh, is what I've been looking for. That uh, that's the be- best best advice, the best help I've uh, encountered so far. and I'll, I certainly will explore it if I can if I can revamp the call it up on the number. But I got friends that I think can help me with that. Sure.
2: Oh, yeah, they definitely could do that. Well, William, well, uh, certainly you're an inspiration. To uh, myself and a lot of other people I I know that are listening, so uh, that's a good example of what active, an active lifestyle, and certainly eating right can do over the long haul.
6: And I just have all my life been concerned about good health, and and I don't know how to use Medicare or anything because we never had to use it. I just (laughs) never. That's great. I feel lucky, and on top of all that, I don't have any aches or pains either. I just feel so fortunate that. I took care of myself, and I might also add, there's been virtually no episodes, no incidents in my family history, and uh, except one heart attack on on my mother's side of the family, among her half dozen brothers and sisters, and but no, and my family tends to live old. Nobody's got to hundred yet, but they get to ninety, ninety five.
2: Well, well, William, you might just uh, be the first. It sounds like.
6: Yeah
4: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
2: This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy Reed this morning answering your calls. I've got some great questions about all kinds of different things this morning. The number to call is one 877 mpb ring that's 1-877-672-7464. Or if you're not able to call today, you can always send us an email to remedy at mpbonline.org.
4: Dr. Jimmy, we got a couple of calls to wrap up the show. We'll go first to Gloria in Biloxi.
2: Good morning, uh, Gloria. How are you this morning?
1: Hey, just fine. Um, I have a couple of questions. It's a little history. I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in uh, late 2017, and have been going on routine of of chemo and such like that since then. And um, what I found out about the metastatic is ovarian cancer is that it doesn't go away. It's I'm going to have it long term and I'll need to be treated. But as a result of that, I've developed neuropathy in my feet. Now, is that just Mm -hmm. the settling of the toxins and stuff like that in my feet? And is this something that can be eventually reversed?
2: yeah a lot of uh the treatment it's probably from the treatment uh so a lot of the things that are used in cancer treatment including ovarian cancer, have some toxicities long term toxicities with them some of the uh platinum uh and uh taxol derivatives can do that mm-hmm. um exactly. and uh, there's a there's a number of them that if you took cisplatin or if it was something that was similar to that but um that there are a number of them that do cause some peripheral neuropathy. Uh, now there there are some things that can treat that. I don't know if they've tried neurontin, which is uh, a uh, a medication mainly for the pain related to neuropathy, but sometimes that's beneficial. Um, you know, and I mean, thing
1: mean, about this is I don't have pain. It's not pain. It's like total yeah. numbness. Yeah. I, I say it, it's like yeah. it's like a sock that's on too tight. I, yeah. I don't have any yeah. pain whatsoever, but I'm uh, concerned about losing the feeling and. Not being able to drive effectively, so that's a yeah, major concern.
2: Right, I would, uh, and you got to be careful with that also with any kind of injury to the to your feet. Um, that you you know check them yeah. often. Uh, Neurontin may give you some relief, but typically, you know, just to be honest with you, I hadn't seen uh, that it's been as beneficial in this situation. Um, some of that is. Uh, self-limiting over time, but in other words, it may get better over time. Uh, but the biggest thing is making sure that you're not, you know, damaging your feet at all. Now, you can work with physical therapy to try to retrain your body to, to you know, to, to do some of those things that you may lose a little bit of, uh, of, of the ability to do just because of the loss of sensation. But, unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of those are permanent in nature. You just sort of have to see what's happening and try a couple of things to try to so improve it's that. it's not function.
1: responsible. It's not something that's going to – I'll be able to detox, beat soak, and stuff like that, and it'll go away. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's not,
2: not really. I mean, it, it, what really is it, it's damage to the nerves, which can take time to, to regain some of that function. And in some situations, you never regain that. So, um, okay. uh, may may not have been the the information you you wanted to hear, but um, certainly that's I'm shooting straight with you on that. Um, well, but, I but appreciate you,
1: that. That's always yes.
2: Yeah, but but you do, okay. do talk to them about maybe something like neurontin that might be worth a shot just to see if it can uh, can uh, decrease the the numbness.
0: Yeah, I started
1: uh, gabapentin, so I'm waiting to see what what, yeah. what that has. Yeah. Yeah, that's the that, that, and
2: that's the, the same resort. thing as the as the neuron. Yeah. So that's that's okay. perfect. All,
1: right, so All right, I'm stuck with it. <laughs> yeah. You okay. hang in there and well, uh, you certainly so you're I'll
2: you're will. beating the
1: odds
2: there.
1: Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, ma'am, thank you for calling.
4: All right, Dr. Jimmy, let's uh, wrap things up. Sue, our friend from Beaumont, has called in. Good morning, Sue. You hang in, talk in there and uh, you. uh, certainly you're I'll you're beating will. the odds there. Okay, thank you. Mm. Yes, ma'am. Are you there, Steve? All right, Dr. Jimmy, let's uh, wrap things up. Sue, our friend from Beaumont. Uh, hey, hang on, Dr. Dude, Jimmy, let's you? see if we can get Sue on the line. Okay, all right.
0: I, I won't ask you a stupid question, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but that's why I'm waiting to last, because it's stupid. But anyway, I wonder how how long after a person dies from, from COVID does that virus last in the body? I called one time, and you said it dies when the body dies, but... That, that virus is so sneaky and persistent what what is, I'm thinking about funeral home workers how, how do they do they treat the bodies as if it were just like a regular death or how so what happens there
2: yeah no that's not a stupid question it's actually a good question um, more about this as as the virus has gone along unfortunately if we have a death from uh, if you have a death from covid um, <clears throat> you know you, you really It can be transmitted from body fluids, um, particularly body fluids from the nasal passages and bloodstream um, immediately following death. Uh, So there there are still some procedures in place to uh, use the same type of of personal equipment that medical professionals do. So the handling of the body after death is, is a little bit different. It's not too much different from some of the other viral illnesses that we have. Now, after you have all those tissues die, the virus dies with that, so it's not a long, you know, it's not going to be that contagious. And certainly if uh, the person's not breathing anymore, that's not contagious, uh, you know, to be transmitted in the air or droplets. So uh, what we're we're seeing now is, you know, initially, uh, just because we didn't know, uh, cremation was, was a choice for a lot of people. Uh, the embalming process, as far as I know, they have re- resumed that and are doing that on uh, individuals who have died from COVID. There's still a lot of precautions, you know, just in case. I mean, you don't want to expose uh, anybody uh, uh, to to COVID uh, in that manner. So, you know, certainly open caskets would not be as as uh, um, as as recommended than closed, but. As far as what I've heard, uh, you can still have a funeral, you can still have a body in a casket, That's and uh, certainly the people who deal with um, uh, individuals who have died of any cause uh, take those precautions so um, that they would have the right equipment on and shouldn't be any increased risk. But that is not a stupid question, Sue. That is an excellent question. Uh, it, what uh, reminded
0: me of that was I saw a show a long time ago. On National Geographic, and it showed them digging, showed scientists and researchers and historians digging into a, a pit they found in England where they, a mass of bodies had been found, you know, from the Black Death,
6: and they yeah, were all wearing yeah.
0: hazmat suits, and I wondered how yeah. long did they think that the Black Death would would have affected them.
2: Yeah, bubonic plague is a little. So it can, it can lie dormant. Most viruses, though, are killed pretty quickly, uh, but certain bacteria can live for centuries. You can dig a corpse back up from ancient Egypt, and if they had TB or some other mycobacterium, you could potentially get that. Um, so there are some things that can hang out a long time, but viruses, thankfully, they don't.
4: Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org.